0: Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. Today, I'm your host, Carl Nellis, and we are talking with Molly Worthen, Assistant Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We're talking about her new book, Apostles of Reason, The Crisis of Authority in American Evangelicalism, out from University of Oxford Press in 2014. Uh, Molly, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So we always like to start with hearing a little bit about the person behind the book. Can we... Hear a little bit about what brought you to this project, how you got interested in the history of evangelicalism, how you got interested in the past hundred years, as opposed to all of history that's open to us.
1: Sure. Well, I grew up outside of Chicago, about 20 miles west of the city, in a town called Glen Ellen, which happens to be um, just a couple of miles. My, my home, uh, my childhood home, was just a couple of miles from one of the American evangelical Mecca's, uh, Wheaton College, uh, which I ended up writing an awful lot about in this book. But I myself did not grow up in an evangelical family. I I knew Wheaton College rather vaguely as this place where my parents said they didn't allow dancing, and it was kind of mysterious to me. Um, so I really had no particular interest in religion. Um, if anything, I was... Um, resentful of my parents few uh, hesitant attempts to to teach uh, my brother and, and me about about uh about religion about about christian ideas uh, until i got to university where as a student in history classes i began to realize that religion is the framework through which a huge proportion of human beings today and throughout the history of the human race have process the world. And so if I wanted to understand history, I had to understand religion. At that time, my my main interests were n- not American religion, uh, mm. really at all. I, I was particularly interested in, in Russian orthodoxy. I spent um, really most of my undergraduate time uh, studying Russian history, taking a lot of Russian language. I took Old Church Slavic. I was quite, quite committed to it. I spent a summer doing what I would now call Amateur ethnography in uh, in rural northern Alberta with mm. a small community of um, uh, Russian orthodox old believers, which I suppose you could somewhat inaccurately uh, caricature as as the Russian version of the amish mm. um, and that that I think was a formative experience for me it, it's where I really uh, I couldn't embed in a in this community because they are too resistant to outsiders, but I certainly got the closest I'd ever gotten to really. Um, having a full-orbed understanding of of a of a religious community, very unlike any that that I had grown up around, I could, took I guess a bit of a detour into diplomatic history, and, and my first book, which grew out of a project I began as an undergraduate, is a actually a biography of a, of a foreign service officer and um, who I came to know because he became a professor at at Yale, where I uh, did my undergraduate work and my PhD. And that, I suppose, uh, took me into the broad history of the second half of the 20th century from an international perspective and the history of ideas as as he, uh, my subject, encountered them. Um, But along the way, I'd also maintained an interest in journalism. I had done some internships at a couple of newspapers. I interned at Time Magazine after college, wrote for my college paper, and when it came time to decide what to do next, I wanted to be a religion writer, but I thought that, as someone with this somewhat odd, spotty background in Russian religion, <laughs> I, I didn't really have any qualifications uh, that would enable me to bring some real value to to uh, American journalism. I thought, well, I need to spend some time reading a lot of books, uh, studying the history, acquainting myself with scriptures um, all of this stuff mm-hmm. and I'll cite frankly I, I wasn't all of the, all that eager to leave uh, the university you know idol, the the, the the wonder wonderful you know ivory tower um, you know kind of isolation from some of the pressures of of grown-up jobs so I applied to graduate school I ended up staying at Yale um, and really initially for strategic reasons um, mm-hmm. I chose to specialize in contemporary American Christianity. I I would have been very happy to continue my my study of Russian orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. I've always been a closet medievalist. I would have been very happy to focus on, you know, 14th century Carthusian monks or something, but... But I was thinking, well, what can I sell? Uh, magazine articles about, you know, to editors. There isn't a huge, unfortunately, it is it is greatly unfortunate. There's not a huge market for articles on on medieval monasticism. Mm-hmm. So, um, but in, but I thought, you know, this is not going to work if my interest in this subject is purely strategic. This is just sort of something I'll try out and I'll I may change, as so many graduate students do. But it turns out, I quickly discovered that to understand anything about the 20th century, you you have to do your homework all the way back. Mm-hmm. So I was able to indulge my interests, I guess you could say, in in ancient and medieval and in early modern history. And along the way, I, I continued to freelance. I, I wrote mm-hmm. magazine articles now and then about uh, contemporary American evangelicalism and religion and politics, the, the Christian right, this sort of thing. And uh, by the end of it, um, I began graduate school in 2005. I was finishing my PhD in, in 2011. It seemed to me that the bottom had really fallen out from journalism as a profession, and hmm. I, I was rather risk averse to begin with. That's half the reason I went to graduate school. So I, I couldn't see trying to make it as a freelancer um, in in that economic climate. And in the meanwhile, I think I had simply become spoiled by the wonderful resources of a of a university community. And I loved not only doing academic work, but also doing journalism in the context of a great library and lots of experts to talk to. Mm-hmm. So I decided to continue my journalistic work along the side, but but really focus on, I guess, what you'd call a more traditional academic career. And so here I am teaching history at the University of North Carolina.
0: Can you tease out the genesis of the book from the the end of that story, I guess?
1: I was broadly interested in American evangelicals and the history of the Christian right, and I had this sense that ideas, uh, that intellectual history, was a more important component of the rise of the Christian right than than many narratives make apparent. Mm-hmm. I also, as as I was sort of reading my way through the many many books that exist on on the history of evangelicals, it it, it struck me that a huge proportion of them are written by um, historians who come themselves from the evangelical world, and not just that, but come from a particular corner of it. They, they tend to be evangelicals from the reformed corner of, of of Protestantism. So the broad stream of the Reformation that, you know, takes its cues, uh, at least in a general sense, from John Calvin and Huldryx Wingley and those guys and is associated with a particularly uh, cerebral version of Protestantism, one that's quite focused on doctrine, one that's quite Mm -hmm. focused on reforming culture and has a a high view of the power of God and and what that means for predestination and the direction of our lives. Um, But there are a a huge range of slightly or quite profoundly different approaches to the Protestant Mm -hmm. tradition that Mm -hmm make up evangelicalism as I understand it, ranging from the uh, you know, Anabaptist tradition to to the Pentecostals. So I set out uh, very much uh, with the aim of trying to incorporate voices from those traditions into an account of um, of the Christian right. So my my aim, uh, as you can tell, was very General, um, and um, i I'm sort of amazed looking back that my professors signed off on it because um, <laughs> I really had no particular plan. And as I got into the archives i I came to discover the reasons why the different branches of of the evangelical community have the relationships with one another that they do. and so I, I would say that three three major arguments emerged in in the book that I that I ended up writing the first I've mentioned, and that is that the culture wars as we understand them the rise of the Christian right they have an intellectual backstory that you cannot uh, simply point to um, you know the anti-communist movement and, and backlash against the civil rights movement and kind of racial prejudice dressed up as as uh, theology uh, I mean those are all Useful angles on on this story, but they are limited, and that to mm-hmm, to have mm-hmm. a more complete understanding of the past fifty years of American politics, you need to get into ideas secondly um I arrived at i guess a broader definition of what the heck an evangelical is yeah. than I'd encountered in a lot of scholarship or or conversations with with people who study these things uh I suppose the pattern um on this much debated issue because people both Scholars and and Christians, uh, uh, observant Christians alike, have been kind of arguing over what evangelical means for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, but I would say the tendency is for people to define the term um, by looking to doctrine, by trying to come up with sort of a statement of faith that all evangelicals share. And I I found those definitions useful and so as far as they go. But even even points of doctrine that uh, are often suggested as the the you know the sine qua non of of what evangelicalism is like the born again experience you know this mm-hmm. kind of um, emotional often kind of instantaneous um, experience subjective experience that persuades someone to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior I mean once you really start poking at that and asking a Pentecostal what he means by that asking yes. a Mennonite what she means by that idea you you start to see that it's not as unifying as 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 you might think, so I uh, ended up circling instead around three questions that I think have have defined the evangelical tradition since the Reformation. Um, I began to think of evangelicalism not as not as a unified movement, but but it was really a conversation of churches and communities that orbit around these shared concerns. And those those are uh, number one. How do you meet Jesus? How do you uh, uh, attain assurance of your salvation and cultivate a, an authentic relationship with with your God? Secondly, how do you reconcile faith and reason? And third, how do you live out your your personal faith in this increasingly secular public square? Mm-hmm. And so I, I really, as those three questions suggest, I really came to see evangelicalism. As a Western uh, child of the Enlightenment, I mean, as, as the uh, as a modern phenomenon, and we might use the term evangelical to talk about Christians in the Global South, but but if we do that, I think we need to be very clear about what we mean about the very different historical contexts. Right. The third argument um, that I that I arrived at as I worked my way through through archives around the country at various denominations and and evangelical colleges and universities was that there's a reason why in the history of evangelicalism this one tradition, the Reformed tradition, seems to loom so large and that, in fact, um, a particular uh, rather small network of kind of post-fundamentalist Reformed evangelical intellectuals and evangelists exerted disproportionate influence over— The political engagement of um, a a much broader range of American evangelicals about uh, they influenced the way uh, these other traditions began to talk about culture and think Mm -hmm. about politics. And in fact, despite lots of dissent and, you know, incredible diversity among evangelicals. Um, a few of them, uh, kind of uh, more the more conservative cousins of of Billy Graham. I mean, um, people like Francis Schaeffer or Jerry Falwell um, came to be anointed. They anointed themselves, I should say, and and this was accepted, I think, by the mainstream media as the spokesman of mm-hmm. what's actually a very diverse movement with all kinds of, including all kinds of folks who who rejected these spokespeople. Um, so my book tries to tell this story, uh, starting starting really in the context of World War II and and the emergence of this uh, kind of new generation of evangelical intellectuals and ranging over these various traditions and how they engaged with some of the um, international religious trends of the late 20th century, mm-hmm. taking it all the way up to to our present time.
0: So let's jump in there where you start your history in the book – and talk about the idea of worldview or Weltanschauung and the fundamentalist modernist controversy from which some of these evangelical thinkers emerge.
1: I start the book uh, writing about the circle of, of intellectuals and, and preachers that I guess you could say orbited around Billy Graham. I mean, he's a useful place to anchor ourselves because you know, no, even if you haven't studied this stuff, you you know who Billy Graham is. Right. And uh, they generally had kind of grown up in the the generation after the generation that really fought the most hammer and tongs violent fights theological fights in the fundamentalist modernist um battles of the of the early 20th century so so these individuals um people like carl henry who was a journalist from uh from long island um and uh harold linzel who all kind of came together um along with Billy Graham, to to found institutions like the, the magazine Christianity Today, they had grown up in the wake of, of the fundamentalist modernist fights and what those fights had done to the intellectual reputation of traditional Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, the shadow of the Scopes trial is sort of hanging over all of this. And these guys really uh, were not happy with the way in which Evangelicals, Orthodox Protestants, as they as they saw them, had been cast, uh, you know, by people like H. L. Mencken as mm-hmm. as these ignorant bumpkins who were behind the times, whose theology was so much less sophisticated than the theology coming out of you know German universities and that sort of thing. So they set out uh, on a mission to both rehabilitate the intellectual uh, reputation of of their tradition mm-hmm. and also find a way to kind of supersede all the, what they thought were the the negative, unfortunate aspects of the fundamentalist movement. They didn't like the way the fundamentalist movement really took this militant posture toward culture advocated, um, uh, you know, creating a separate pure Christian world unto itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, These guys uh, were, were really um, in favor of uh, more active engagement with um, the elements of, of Western culture they, they didn't agree with, and so um, one of their number, uh, a Boston pastor named Harold Achengay coined the term neo-evangelical to describe what they what they were about. You know, neo meaning we're kind of reinventing this tradition, but we're we're sticking very closely to all the theological fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Theologically, these guys really saw themselves as still fundamentalists. But in their style, in their in- engagement with, with um, intellectual opponents, they were something new. They were, mm-hmm. they were evangelicals. And so they founded a number of institutions to try to advance this perspective, this magazine Christianity Today, a new society for evangelical theologians, a new seminary out in California, Fuller Theological Seminary. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting about their background is that a number of them uh, went to some of the same... Uh, higher educational institutions, places like Wheaton College uh, in, in my childhood backyard and Westminster Theological Seminary, a conservative Presbyterian school. And they, they had studied in many cases with the same professors. And so they all had direct contact with a particular theological tradition uh, called presuppositionalism, and that's a real mouthful. Um, but really, it, the key ideas of it are right there in that word. Um, presuppositionalism is a an approach to to theology, to argument that says the most important thing is a person's presuppositions. That is, the assumptions. That you or I bring to our conversation that we don't really challenge, that maybe we're not totally aware of, but that inform our starting point and inform what we can believe or or not believe. And this is an approach to uh, to theological debate that really has its roots in in the late 19th century, the turn of the turn of the century in in the Netherlands, a thinker named Abraham Kuiper. Um, who became important for these guys but but the fellow who really who really brought it into its mature form was a professor that a number of my subjects had at, at Westminster theological Seminary, uh, a Dutch guy named Cornelius van Till and he really hammered out the details of this and um, so so my subjects were really preoccupied with one of the key ideas in presuppositionalism which is the notion of the world view the Weltanschauung mm-hmm. you used the German word earlier which is so ev- evocative i think and yeah. And it, it really had a wider resonance um, at this point in Western history, because that German word was familiar to um, a quite wide range of, of American uh, English-speaking readers, even even outside the realm of theology and the, the ivory towers of the universities, because of World War II, and because it was a word that Adolf Hitler had frequently used in his speeches. Uh, he had Defended the you know the Nazi Weltanschauung, and he had torn down and you know tried to discredit what he saw as the the bankruptcy of of the Western Weltanschauung. And um, in the 1930s and 40s, there was a great deal of angst among Western intellectuals, and I'm not just speaking of conservative Christians here, about the uh, Western worldview and the the moral roots. And at a time when um it did seem i think to to many intellectuals like um christianity's role in in western culture had had really uh, evolved or even eroded this is a a story uh, you know not not of a bunch of intellectuals kind of playing catch up uh, playing intellectual catch-up, being kind of behind the times, belatedly grasping old ideas. But rather, it's a story of of these Christian thinkers who are really in the thick of World War II and the early Cold War. Um, you know, because of course the the Welt battle, you know, of the 50s and 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 forward was the was the Cold War. Um, yeah. And they uh, they elaborated this notion of the Christian worldview into a really powerful. Uh, political and cultural tool. I and mean, their argument was, if you are a true Christian, Christianity is then not just something that you do on Sundays or maybe Wednesday evenings too. Um, it's not just something that you do in your own home at your dinner table. It has to inform every sphere of your existence, uh, from the schools you send your children to, to how you vote, to how you, you know, think about, um, you know, what the relations between husbands and wives, mm-hmm. to your views on international relations and economics. And while this first generation of intellectuals that I, I was interested in um, were not super savvy um, political organizers, They're, and their interests, to be fair, were not really um, in direct political grassroots organizing. Their interests mm-hmm. were more intellectual and cultural, I believe that in many ways they laid the groundwork um, for just a very powerful orientation that we can trace across the decades and, and find still today among uh, Christian right activists.
0: Mm-hmm. Some of the people that you've already mentioned become names, you know, they're not Billy Graham, but they become names that that recur over and over even as your narrative goes forward. You talk about Carl Henry, and you've mentioned him already um, but there are some other figures who come back and back over the next few decades of your narrative, and one of them is John Howard Yoder. Can you talk about him a little bit?
1: Yes, well, uh, you know, here I I set out, I told you, uh, you know, that I set out in this project to overturn the dominance of this particular group of reformed thinkers, and, mm-hmm. and I've just spent several minutes talking about them, and they did remain, <laughs> they, you know, I couldn't get away from them. They just, right, they remain right. so important, but I stuck to my original mission of really trying to, trying to pay close attention to these other kinds of evangelicals. And I I deliberately uh, defined evangelical in my my net, uh, my archival net, uh, wider than some people would. Um, Are Mennonites, and John Howard Yoder was one of the most prominent Mennonite theologians of the 20th century, are they evangelicals? Well, if you put that question to... Mennonites themselves, you'd get a range of answers. Many, many Mennonites would say, absolutely not. We don't want anything to do with that that word. Um, But Mennonites are a great example of of a community that even if a lot of them are uncomfortable identifying as evangelical, largely because of the political connotations that word now has, uh, they pay attention to evangelical conversations and happenings and they they care about what's what's going on in that conversation that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, you know, of of this podcast. So Yoder is a great example. Um, He is someone who um, he he grew up in uh, the thick of um, Mennonite culture in Indiana and um, was very intellectually inclined from the beginning. Um, headed off to to Europe to uh, continue his his studies, and struck up as a young man a very interesting uh, set of correspondence um, mm-hmm. with with some of the guys that I've been talking about. These kind of reformed post fundamentalist folks, including Carl Henry, mm-hmm. who was quite a bit older than him, but but Yoder was precocious and never short on you know uh, self confidence. So he he wrote. Henry a number of letters, uh, um, basically picking an argument with him about the nature of evangelicalism and the mission of traditional Protestantism in the 20th century. And I was really struck when I was reading these letters in in his uh, archival collection in Goshen, Indiana, that he always uses the um, first-person plural he says, we, you know, this is a matter that, that we need to take seriously, not you as an evangelical, but right. we as evangelicals. Right. And he really, even as a young man, challenged some key assumptions that uh, evangelicals like Carl Henry had about the authority of the Bible and the mm-hmm. role of Christians in culture. Uh, so, you know, Anabaptists have a different way of understanding biblical authority. Um, these Reformed guys who orbited around Billy Graham um, really uh, put at the kind of center of their Christian worldview a particular understanding of the Bible's perfection, this, mm-hmm. this idea of biblical inerrancy, the notion that the Bible is wholly without error, not just in matters pertaining to salvation, but in every detail of history and science, you know, from the scope of the flood to the, you know, the minute details of ancient Israel's. Politics essentially that the Bible you know the Bible is a is a textbook and this is a view with a particular history uh, we can talk about um, maybe later on if you're interested that goes back to the to the 17th century I would I would say and it it has to do with the way that um, uh, the, the, the uh, I guess the forebears of Carl of Henry um, Protestant theologians um, try to push back against their Uh, opponents in the scientific revolution and uh, enlightenment thinkers, as well as Catholic counter-reformation theologians who had this, um, inconvenient habit of logically mercilessly picking apart Protestant arguments. So they developed in response to these threats, Carl Henry's theological ancestors, Mm -hmm. uh, tried to essentially turn their enemies weapons upon them. And they developed a highly rationalistic, um, mode of considering the Bible, um, that really, um, took as its founding assumption, if God is perfect and unchanging, then his revelation must be perfect and unchanging as well. And what that means is that every, every detail, um, of, of scripture is absolutely, um, without error. And, um, if, if modern science, ever seems to be at odds with with some part of scripture, then it is modern science that is wrong. Now, you can see how this sets this stream of evangelicalism up for a real collision with much of modern intellectual life. John Howard Yoder was very aware that uh, this fundamentalist view of the Bible had made some inroads in the Mennonite community. Um, Mennonites had their own version of the fundamentalist modernist fight And this is an early sign of what I mean about the influence of this particular stream, this reformed stream of of evangelicalism. But Yoder felt that this was not actually true to uh, the whole spirit of the Anabaptist heritage. And, you know, the Anabaptist tradition um, is historically not so fixated or inclined to view the Bible as a history textbook, but rather to focus on the Bible as a guide for daily life and uh, communal responsibility mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of emphasis in 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 the Mennonite tradition particularly on really what the Bible means for our life together as a community and how you should conduct yourself on a daily basis and there is not a, a highly developed doctrine of biblical inspiration um, you know did God really dictate every word you know what was the relationship between the authors of scripture and and God, this is not a question historically that really bothered Mennonites. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, for their early history, they were uh, they were busy, you know, running away from various, you know, czars and potentates who right. who yeah. wanted to persecute them. So they had other things on their mind. Um, and so Yoder, uh, in addition, of course, um, Yoder drew on the Anabaptist testimony of nonviolence mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. a very different understanding of what it means to witness to the gospel in in a hostile culture and so he was drawing on this tradition to really to really push back against the influence of the 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 other wing of evangelicalism represented by by carl henry and and his associates and that's a tension that that i trace you know all the way up through the the present day as as we we see you know in our own time uh young millennial evangelicals who perhaps grew up in mega churches that that are connected to that Billy Graham Carl Henry tradition um but are now rather frustrated with with the legacy of the moral majority with that approach to the culture wars and you find them picking up the books of John Howard Yoder and really getting interested in this different way of thinking about Christian heritage mm.
0: The other groups that you spend significant time on, I think justly, are the the Wesleyan traditions, the Nazarene church and the Methodist church. And in particular, you, you draw them into the narrative when you're talking about setting up educational institutions, looking at the evangelical colleges, Bible colleges, seminaries, putting them side by side with colleges like Goshen and Nazarene schools. Can you talk a little bit more and maybe kind of move forward in your argument, talking about the significance of higher education and the role that it played in this emerging evangelical identity?
1: Yeah, I, I think that uh, conservative Protestants, all since the very beginning of their history on the North American continent, saw themselves as responsible for the education of the next generation. And you know, for for a very long time, up into the late 19th century, you know, uh, for the small proportion of Americans who went to college, they they most of them would have gone to church affiliated institutions, mm-hmm. small liberal arts colleges, often founded by. Denominations or or missionary groups, and um, in this model of education, the point of 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 higher education is to um, make a responsible Christian citizen and pass down a certain uh, Christian Western heritage, uh, sense of duty and respect for one's elders and authority. Um, Professors were not specialists who had really much interest in. Making new discoveries, but rather they tended to be generalists, often young men who were on their way to something else, um, mm-hmm. who who were really passing along um, this general body of knowledge. The, the president of these places was typically a pastor himself, and he would often teach a capstone course called moral philosophy, which you know would be this kind of blend of normative claims about the world, drawing on on Christianity and the Western philosophical tradition, mm-hmm. and. What happens in the late 19th century is that um, America begins to import a very different model of higher education based on the research universities that emerged in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, these these institutions were generally, at some level, quite independent from church authority uh, with a great deal of emphasis on a long education of deep specialization for this uh, emerging guild of uh, academics who saw themselves as beholden not to, uh, not to any religious authority, but really only to other specialists in their field. Mm-hmm. And the point of universities uh, in this paradigm is the advance of knowledge and the, the deliberate challenging of authority. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's in these German universities that, um, that we see the rise of higher biblical criticism um, that, de- that, that uh, dares to really treat the Bible as a historical artifact, just like any, any other uh, artifact. And this leads this leads to all these theological reinterpretations and innovations that so disturb conservative Protestants. I start with this long uh, prologue. Because it's important for understanding what 20th century evangelicals thought they were doing in their, mm-hmm. in their own yeah. efforts. Uh, they saw themselves as, I think, in many ways, trying to preserve the, the proper way education had happened, um, you know, for the first couple of centuries of, um, America's I- existence as a, a lively, you know, Christian Western colony and right. then a rep- republic. And, and this takes on a new edge in, the context of the late 19th, early 20th century um, as um, evangelical groups be- become quite alarmed at the inroads that um, a liberal Protestants are making in um, in Christian education and in the culture more broadly. And so mm-hmm. we start to see um, some of these groups try to try to push back by founding their own institutions. And the story is different, you know, across the different traditions that I wrote about. I mean, I found with um, some of these churches, like the, the Church of the Nazarene and the Mennonites, uh, number one, they had a pretty significant suspicion of the value of higher education mm-hmm. to begin with, um, particularly when it came to training pastors. They thought, well, you know, what seems to happen is, is you send young people away to university and they get exposed to these heterodox, you know, German ideas and they come back and they're not fit to, to pastor a church. So what's the point of this? You know, really all you need to know to be a pastor is, is to, is the Bible. I mean, the Mennonites for crying out loud. I mean, they, historically they had selected pastors by lot, you know, it was a, it was a random uh, process. Um, so, uh but but gradually, I think um because none of these groups are, you know, isolated from the American mainstream and their own young people in increasing numbers um, especially after World War II are clamoring for um for higher educational opportunities. They uh they begin to, you know, try to try to create this delicate balance between their their duties to their own immediate uh, theological community and their, you know, their need to respond to the trends in mainstream higher education. I I never would have expected to become fascinated by rather uh, abstruse arguments over college accreditation. Right, but, right. But I became totally fascinated. I by accident uh, when I was out at Biola, um, which. Um, was a fundamentalist, now we'd probably say conservative evangelical uh, school Mm -hmm. in uh, Southern California. Um, I stumbled upon the archive of this accreditation association that a number of fundamentalist Bible colleges got together and set up um, in the 1940s. And they did this because they saw that there was this um, increasing demand by by various constituencies that they were answerable to parents and and students, Mm -hmm. particularly. Uh, for some level of systemization, they, they, they had students who wanted to be able to transfer, you know, take their credits from, from their institution and go elsewhere. And they they were aware that um, uh, secular or, or liberal Protestant um, Colleges had been uh, accepting the authority of these regional accreditation bodies for for some time, and they didn't want anything to do with that but I, th- I thought, well we can found our own we can be in, in charge of our own rules and also and this was another interesting piece of it we can control what it really means to be a Bible college because mm-hmm. we don't want we don't want our brand to be tarnished by you know non serious places that aren't really uh, teaching a rigorous you know, education, biblical education, not really preparing um, students to, to be missionaries. So we just want to we want to control our turf. Um, so what emerges is this sort of fascinating dance between uh, this need to to somehow keep pace with some of the demands in mainstream secular accreditation, mm-hmm. especially as their students. Uh, grow in number and um, are no longer so certain that they want to go on and serve the church their whole lives or become missionaries. You know, maybe they want to go to nursing school or law school or something that, you know, means they might want to take their degree and need it recognized by the, the state university up the road. Well, That means that these uh, these institutions have to start paying attention to what these uh, mainstream accreditors want. They have to start building science labs and expanding their library, while yet you know fending off the concerns of local pastors and alumni that they're somehow drifting from the Bible. You know, can they still insist on thirty hours of 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 uh, of Bible uh, course credits um, if students also have to do these other things? And I noticed, you know, as I traced this story. Uh, down the decades, um, some kind of, uh, you know, splits forks in the road, you know, mm-hmm. so you have institutions like Moody Bible Institute, which was founded in the late 19th century. And, uh, you know, it really as a place where you would go and, and study uh, English Bible, you would not you would not really take uh, Bible courses in the original languages because that's the sort of thing that those German universities do, and it comes to no good. You would, you know, you would learn maybe uh, basic dentistry, you know, so that you could go uh, into, you know, the uh, the African bush and you could take you could take care of your family and and the community you were evangelizing. Very practical courses like this. Yeah. And Moody Bible Institute today. Uh, while there have been interesting changes in their curriculum and a kind of multicultural awareness that you can really see in their course catalog now, it's still a Bible institute. I mean, it's still really aimed at, at young people who who want to serve the church. Um, but a place like uh, Biola, uh, whose name, you know, originally was an acronym for the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. uh, which shares some, you know, very broadly speaking, some of the same DNA as Moody has now become you know a large university and really yes. sees itself as a cosmopolitan place um, it has an honors college it's a you know pretty serious operation you can study you know a huge range of, of courses there yes and uh, and really you know has positioned itself while still adhering to to conservative doctrines Yeah. Uh, you know in, in a in a kind of marginal way you know really in a serious relationship with the mainstream expectations of secular uh, intellectual life i think and it, so there's this par- there's this paradox you know this this way in which evangelical educators and administrators Begin to value many of the things that uh, mainstream intellectual life prizes. Uh, I mean, they they're often very proud of their faculty who who have fancy PhDs, and that that becomes more and more common um, as time passes. Uh, so there's a balance between that and the way in which they they very much hold uh, secular universities and everything they represent at arm's length and remain very critical of their authority. Certainly, very resistant. Um, on on matters like the teaching of science and and evolution as as well, of course, as the study of the Bible and rules governing student life, all of these things remain important divisions. So in the book, I try to kind of tease out this this paradox and try to make sense of it.
0: And in thinking about the way that some streams of evangelicalism engaged uh, European thought, uh, you, you coalesce it really interestingly into some engagements with Karl Barth, whom I think you call the most significant Protestant theologian of the 20th century. Yeah. And on the other side with C.S. Lewis, who's a figure that you use to introduce the idea of imagination, which then comes back at the end of the book. Um, could you talk just a little bit more about about those two figures and how American evangelicals related to them in the 60s, 70s?
1: I, I uh, began my description of the neo-evangelicals by talking about their Hunger for the intellectual respect that they thought they were due, and mm-hmm. a major component of that was uh, that they they believed that they deserved a place at the table in this theological discussion, really centered in in Europe, I think. Mm-hmm. And they they wanted someone like Karl Barth to take their their theologians seriously. And so Christianity today would review Karl Barth's books, would sometimes print. Uh, excerpts from his books. Um, there are very few a um, handful of letters that the editors uh, wrote to him, and I think I found one or two rather brief responses. And in fact, yes. I opened the book with this this uh, um, encounter between Karl Barth uh, on his visit to the United States in, in the 60s, and Karl Henry, who was covering uh, Bart's appearance in Washington, D.C., in his capacity as as an editor at, at Christianity Today, and Essentially, they get into this this fight over uh, what it means to say that the miracles of the Bible really happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think uh, Henry asks, you know, if if Christ's resurrection happened today, would, would all these reporters who are here now, would they cover it as news? And, right. you know, essentially, the BART and the, the room full of journalists burst out laughing because the question seems so so absurd. Um and you know Bart shoots back. You know, did you say you were from Christianity today or Christianity yesterday? You know, um, and I I'm, I always wondered. You know, uh, if I'd, I'd lo- I I'd love I would have loved the chance to you know read or or talk to to Bart while he was alive about about that encounter. I have the suspicion that he probably barely remembered it. I, I bet it didn't really. I doubt that it fixed in his mind but for Carl Henry who recounted this in, this incident in his memoir at great length it was clearly this sort of defining moment and he really felt that he you know when he shot back in his retort you know christianity yesterday today and forever you know that's what i stand for he really felt that he got got the better of of bart but um and and at some level i think that uh, the neo-evangelicals had this hope that, that maybe in some way Karl Barth and uh, other theologians who are typically classed as neo-orthodox thinkers mm-hmm. were somehow potential allies in the battle against pagan modernity. Because the neo-orthodox theologians, as that name implies, while, while um, many issues divided uh, people like Emil Brunner and Reinhold Niebuhr from Karl Barth. These guys did not agree on everything. Uh, they did share a common uh, critique of liberal Protestantism and its uh, undue optimism about human nature. Its its claims about God's imminence at the expense of a, a sense of God's distance and awesomeness um, from our our human existence and so even though these guys were not uh, believers in an inerrant Bible by any stretch of the imagination there is a way in which they they both saw that there were there were problems with uh, kind of secular modernity now uh, CS Lewis um, I got interested in Lewis as I observed in, not just in my historical work but in my in my um, capacity as a journalist uh, what a lasting hold he still has on American evangelicals. And so I was really interested to sort of get to the bottom of that. And I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time in the archives at Wheaton College, um, which has a center devoted to Lewis and some of his friends, um, the, uh, the the Marion Wade Center, and has a lot of um, related papers and also has the papers of a a particular professor of English uh, there named Clyde Kilby. Hmm. Now, he's not someone that that anyone, you know, outside of a handful of, of specialists really um, uh, have heard of, un- unless you're, you know, in certain evangelical circles. But I found that he was tremendously important for teasing out this other way of kind of speaking back to the Carl Henry's of the world certainly speaking back to the Jerry Falwells of the world um, Clyde Kilby was teaching at Wheaton uh, in the the middle of the of the 20th century he was teaching at a place that that was still very aware of its fundamentalist heritage but was more ecumenical, um, had a, a wider range of, of students coming to it than you know, a place like Bob Jones or one of these other more fundamentalist institutions. And I think that Kilby um, was also very aware that many of his students were growing up in families, coming out of contexts in which art and fiction, uh, literature were all considered a bit suspect. Uh, you know, w- they 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 didn't have cl- a clear didactic purpose often you know they 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 could be vessels of dangerous modern ideas they weren't something that these students grew up with and kilby thought this was a great shame that his students had this very pinched understanding of of the incarnation frankly mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. you know god's work in the world and the way in which um all of these aspects of our culture can be can carry some spark of the divine, and C.S. Lewis. Um, he, he struck up a correspondence with C.S. Lewis, and he taught a number of courses focused on the work of of Lewis as well as J.R.R. Tolkien, um, mm-hmm. who's Catholic. Um, and these these the works of these two authors became sort of gateway drugs for for his students. Uh, The thing about C.S. Lewis is that he lays his theological cards on the table, and he wrote um, loads of apologetic work that makes his commitment to Christian orthodoxy very clear before he embarked on his really uh, equally well-known fiction career. Um in in his fantasy writing, and so uh, c. s. Lewis w- was not seen as so dangerous. You know we know he's a Christian, and for crying out loud, you know the chronicles of Narnia are this very obvious uh, you know allegory. Mm. Um, and uh, and likewise, you know, Tolkien was you know yes Catholic, but known as known as Christian. Um, and so uh, these were safe books, and they opened up. A whole world of of literature and artistic appreciation. And one of my favorite discoveries in the archives was this uh, folder of letters. Um, they, they weren't. I suppose they weren't actually letters addressed to Kilby. They were really more um, course evaluations hmm. um, addressed to the department about Kilby's courses. And these students just went on. Uh, rapturously about the way the course had changed their their view of of Christianity and the sort of richness of their own tradition and i came to i came to think of of this commitment that Kilby had to the power of of the imagination mm. as as a really interesting lens uh, for understanding evangelicalism more more broadly that that can sometimes encompass Political commitments um, and a, a kind of what what scholars like to call sort of an imaginary uh, mm-hmm. a library of images and tropes and things that come out of the tradition, um, but but can can mean all kinds of other sort of broader things um, and gave evangelicals who had some quarrel with with the kind of emerging Christian right and its posture toward culture a broader way of thinking about their tradition and engaging with with the wider world without necessarily sacrificing their own commitments.
0: Now, the other major aspect of evangelicalism that you talk about uh, following the discussion of higher education is uh, evangelism movements. So Graham is obviously there, but you talk about other figures who are key in uh, really helping to bring together and create a unified um, sense of what, uh, evangelism was. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of evangelicalism that you wanted to engage alongside this kind of a I- world of ideas and education?
1: Yeah, I I tried to understand the position of of my main subjects, uh, who who were all American, more or less, mm. in an international context, um, and I came to see uh, as I traced the conversations they were having over the years that they saw the need to both kind of come up with a conservative response to the liberal Protestant ecumenical movement, Mm -hmm. um, that would create a platform for conversation and collaboration between conservative Protestants around the world, as well as, you know, this abiding, um, ancient commitment to, to evangelism, um, that morphs over time, but, but remains important. And so I became particularly interested in the history of this international massive international conference um that happened for the first time in 1974 but there have been iterations of it every few years since then called the lausanne conference Mm. Um, billy graham played a a big role in that as did um the uh the the anglican evangelist john stott um and in many ways it was quite dominated still by by um western european and, and north american evangelicals but they were at least by this point in 1974 quite aware um, of the need to promote the voices of of conservative Protestants from the global South, and so um, in that context there were really fascinating debates between. Christians from uh, Latin America and, and Asia and and those mm-hmm. from, from uh, you know, the, the, the Western world over the priorities of the church. I mean, they could all agree on, on, you know, the sort of basics of Christian doctrine on, you know, on the page. But in practice, you know, what does this mean for the church's commitment to social justice, you know, mm-hmm. in what ways? did, uh, you know, the particular context of American political history um, blind American evangelicals to the resonance of some of the social justice themes in the gospel uh, in other parts of the world. At the same time, um, I found myself following the history of the greatest uh, in terms of scale, re- revival in the 20th century—one that is arguably still underway—and that is the mm. charismatic renewal movement, mm-hmm. um, which is this explosion of what we would call Pentecostal style uh, worship practices and, and ideas. That really starts in the in the 1950s mm-hmm. in uh, in churches where prior to this, things like speaking in tongues or prophesying. Or claiming, you know, a power to 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 heal, uh, you know, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, physical injuries and illnesses. These these ideas would have been totally um, verboten in in you know all all uh, Protestant communities, except for those that that came out of the the Pentecostal movement in the early twentieth century. You've seen as a until this time a very uh, marginal, somewhat embarrassing um, approach to Christian spirituality. But starting in the 50s, you start to see Lutherans in Minnesota and Anglican or Episcopalians in, in San Francisco having these experiences. And over the years, I mean, it mm. starts to hit the, the Catholic uh, community in the late 1960s. There are, um, there's really, uh, there's no strain of Christianity that's totally untouched by by this uh, this wave of revivals um, really yeah. by by the 1970s and and it's it proves divisive I mean in some cases it splits churches um, but in other cases it builds amazing bridges you know so I found uh, records of Uh, Cistercian monks, you know, going to a uh, full gospel, you know, international men's (laughs) fellowship and, uh, you know, and being embraced as long lost brothers, Uh, Catholic groups, you know, giving money to for to sponsor evangelical revivals. And and this has massive um, implications for how American evangelicals understand the the wider world, too, Mm -hmm. because uh, this charismatic Pentecostal spiritual style um is particularly successful um, in Africa and, and Latin America and in Asia um, in many ways it, it resonated with uh, pre-christian uh, spiritual traditions that really saw a, a, a vibrant uh, spiritual um, dimension to to everyday reality and uh, looked for the the hand of God um, in, uh, in 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 every mundane detail of, of your life and, and hoped for the role of, of the spirit world and healing and things like this. Um, So these American evangelicals who up to this point had really thought that, you know, these miracles, the tongues, all this stuff, you know, that was what the apostles did, but that was something God ordained only for that time and no more. They start getting these reports back from their own initially skeptical missionaries Mm -hmm. saying, listen, I witnessed this healing or I witnessed this revival in which thousands of people Came to Jesus and started speaking in tongues and fell on the ground. And um, at a certain point, these evangelicals can't uh, can't dismiss this. And and I think that um, the rise of the charismatic renewal movement and the way it reshapes every aspect of of spirituality, um, from the music that you encounter, you know, mm-hmm. in the average suburban megachurch to The way people physically comport themselves in the pews, um, you know, maybe being, if not falling down in the aisle, then still a little more open to swaying, to closing their eyes and holding their hands up with their palms open um, to the sky and maybe speaking quietly under their breath. All of this, uh, this enhanced physicality and openness to uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, number one, it creates a kind of common spiritual understanding that I think allowed Evangelicals and Catholics to begin to see one another as as part of the same faith, uh, equally mm-hmm. pious and it 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 really creates um, this immense wellspring of of fellow feeling and respect for Christians in the global south, especially as Western evangelicals increasingly see their own culture as sliding inexorably toward secular paganism and they they see Africa and Latin America, you know, and, and Christianity's rise in China as as the real hope for the future. And I think too the charismatic renewal movement represents this 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 enormous international kind of protest against the the claims of of modernity, mm-hmm. of you know, modern science and technology and uh you know social planning to solve all of our problems and uh you know it's part of this uh this ebb and flow that we see in you know the history of i think really all human civilizations between religious enthusiasm and the reassertion of planning and, and reason uh so in this regard our era is not so different from centuries past
0: mhm so coming forward from there you address so many interesting things toward the end of the book. When you're addressing what you call the varieties of American evangelicalism, which was taken from a title really nicely, you describe and engage with the variety of Bible translations and responses to the RSV, which was seen by evangelicals as too liberal. Um, you talk a lot about how history is is seen and used in American evangelicalism with some really careful analysis of a couple of decades at the Southern Baptist Convention, and you talk about recent internal ways of approaching the history of evangelicalism, especially uh, with Mark Knoll's work. You address Francis Schaeffer's work in the evangelical church. So there's there's so much packed into the end of this book. Um, But why don't we finish with uh, the way you discuss the evangelical left that arises in the 70s, what their influence was then, and how they've continued to be a presence in evangelicalism broadly conceived.
1: Yes, and I think this picks up some of the some of the strands that that we've been tracing earlier in this conversation. Because activists like uh, Jim Wallace, the uh, the the evangelical writer Nancy Hardesty, and and uh, Ron Sider, um, who comes out of the Anabaptist tradition, these these individuals in the 1970s uh, all had some personal relationship with the more fundamentalist inclined. Um, communities of, of evangelicalism. Uh, Wallace himself grew up in a conservative Plymouth Brethren home in, in Michigan. But they they made a very conscious effort to draw on some of these other historical strands that I've described to, to say very explicitly, evangelicalism is not just Billy Graham and the editorials of Christianity Today magazine. Evangelicalism is the Wesleyan tradition of um, you know, greater uh, greater rights in the church for women, and a kind of understanding of the progress that God intended us to make over time as a human community that allows for a different reading of some of Paul's prescriptions in in the Bible. Mm. Um, evangelicalism is also the Anabaptist tradition, and its uh, its nonviolent witness and its critique of state power, uh, and to to simply cede the the territory of evangelicalism to the loudest, uh, most politically charged voices is to do a disservice to our tradition and to betray um, the great commitments of the gospel in our time, which these these people all saw as as the the social justice challenges of the of the '60s and '70s and '80s. And so, uh, Jim Wallace really tried to. Um, make a make a claim that the the phrase the ethic of life uh, is not is not one that should allude only or even primarily to the abortion question, but one that should call a Christian to defend life very broadly speaking, to defend the, the dignity of, of poor people and the, and the aged and and other people on society's margins. And um, I think in the seventies there was this dynamic uh uncertainty that is hard to understand from our own perspective when it seems like the sides of the culture war are so settled and and kind of fixed um there was a lot of uh, i think ambiguity on um the politics of of the fight over abortion it wasn't such a partisan issue you had many vocal democrats who were pro uh who were pro life um and uh, re- Republicans who who thought that abortion should be legal, certainly most evangelical Protestants, until at least the late 1970s, saw abortion as really a, at least a, you know active protesting of abortion as very much a Catholic thing, not really not really a commitment they had. Um, and there's this there's this sorting that happens, this polarization on on both sides. Um, uh, maybe, maybe more so on the right, but also on the left. Um, mm. Abortion becomes this uh, symbol of of all legal abortion is the symbol of all that that is is wrong with the state of Western civilization and a few key activists like uh, Francis Schaefer also persuade vast numbers of of evangelicals that abortion is murder and it is is something that they really need to stand up against. And Mm -hmm. that, I mean, I think that really helps drive a wedge and discredit the efforts of people like Jim Wallace to to rally numbers that could in any way rival um, hmm. the emerging moral majority. I mean, you see you see efforts along these lines. I mean, I I followed the the trail of evangelicals for McGovern. You know, their efforts to yes. to support uh, McGovern's election. Um, a fascinating the, the,
0: the, part of the book. I love that.
1: Yeah, I'm fascinating. Just, if a a, a ra- yeah, they didn't they didn't have too much success, but and and. Um, a historian who's written about this in in far greater length than I have, David Swartz, has traced the way in which uh, the evangelical left was this this co- complicated coalition of sort of progressive reformed thinkers and Anabaptists and Wesleyans and also women and 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 and. and Protestants of color and people who were um, not from the United States and they 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 benefit from their pluralism but ultimately their pluralism does divide them it's this common pattern in evangelical history you know this kind of this uh, spinning off and um, breakdown of of communities um, along along um, very complicated lines however I think that the the evangelical left I mean it, it remains a, a a potent voice in uh, in politics today, and I see as as more and more millennial evangelicals become disillusioned with um, with traditional more conservative churches, um, particularly because of what they see as a i think inhumane treatment of gay friends that they have and a failure to really step up and and witness the gospel on on issues of racial justice. Mm-hmm. I think we'll we'll start to see if we're not already seeing a kind of resurgence um and uh there's a reason why you know the books books of John Howard Yoder are are still in print and still finding mm. a a small but dedicated and influential audience and I I by no means am forecasting um, the emergence of the evangelical left as, as <laughs> the, the the dominant face of of conservative Protestantism, and I I'm also not one of these people who thinks that the Christian right is dead or dying. I mm-hmm, think it's mm-hmm. it's still even though its numbers do shrink a little bit every year, um, it's still a very powerful and dynamic force mm-hmm. in our culture. It's going to be around for a very long time, but 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 the evangelical left is not going away either.
0: Yeah. Well. Uh, Molly, thanks so much for joining us on new books and in intellectual history. Um, before we go, can you tell us about what you might be working on now? What we could expect from you in the future?
1: Well, I continue to um, write about religion and politics um, in my capacity as journalist um, for uh, for the New York Times, primarily. So I'm always I'm always working on 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 an article uh, related to that. Um, at the moment, I'm I'm working on a piece um, about the kind of difficult place that evangelical uh, faculty and administrators and people who are part of the Christian college circuit find Mm -hmm. themselves in, Mm -hmm. in our current political landscape in the context of the Trump movement. I have uh, next year uh, a a audio and and DVD course coming out with the teaching company on the the global history of Christianity since the Reformation. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been a broad, fun project and i'm just in the very beginning of a new book project which i think will be a history of the idea of charisma in american history both mm-hmm. with the political and the religious valences of that term so that's a broad project that will have a lot of evangelical history in it but but will we'll stretch well beyond that too
0: mm-hmm. Well, we will keep our eyes out for that and follow you in the New York Times again, Molly. Thanks so much uh, for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: Thanks for having me.